0: On October 9th, 2002, within the walls of Florida State Prison at 9.47 in the morning, a 46 year old female serial killer was executed by lethal injection. The killer's name was Eileen Warnas, and she had been convicted of murdering six men. Now, this prison is the same location where Ted Bundy was electrocuted in 1989. As of the year 2000, lethal injection was the standard, but the prison still had a working electric chair. Because of this, death row inmates were offered the choice, almost as if they were handed a dark and sinister menu that had two choices. Lethal injection or electric chair. This is the story of Eileen Warnas and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. Eileen was born to and lived her early life in Rochester, Michigan. Eileen's mom, Diane, was actually only 16 years old when Eileen was born. Her mom, however, had been married since she was 14, and she was married to an 18 year old man named Leo. Now, Diane had already given birth to one child Eileen's brother, Keith. When Eileen was born, her mom had already divorced her dad after just over two years of marriage. At the time of the divorce, Eileen's dad was in jail, having been convicted of kidnapping and raping a seven-year-old girl. Eileen never knew her dad. While in prison, they diagnosed her dad, Leo, with schizophrenia, and in 1969, while still incarcerated, He committed suicide. When Eileen turned four years old, her mom left her and her brother with their grandparents, who happened to be alcoholics. It wasn't long, just months, actually, uh, that the grandparents adopted both of the kids. Now, according to someone who refers to herself as Eileen's, quote, best friend, uh, in a documentary on Discovery... Eileen loved her grandmother. She made sure that Eileen was well-fed. She took her to church. She had her attend all the right schools. Eileen's actions, however, differ from this quote-unquote wonderful life that Eileen supposedly enjoyed with her grandmother. So I'm not thoroughly convinced that it was all that great with her grandparents. And here's what I mean by that. By the time Eileen was 11, she had already learned how to trade sexual favors for food, drugs, and cigarettes, even at school, at 11 years old. She also claimed that she had engaged in sexual activities with her own brother. Now, further, Eileen, later on in life, said that her grandfather had sexually assaulted and beaten her when she was a child, and that before beating her, he would make her strip naked. At age 14, Eileen became pregnant. Now, there are two differing stories on this. Uh, The first story is that she was raped by a friend of her grandfather's. The second story, and even more disturbing, was that she was impregnated by her brother. Whichever story is true, we do know that at 14, she was pregnant and that she was sent to a home for unwed mothers to give birth. In 1971, Eileen then gave birth to a baby boy and had to immediately hand him over to be adopted. After returning back to her grandparents' home, it wasn't long before Eileen dropped out of school and shortly thereafter her grandmother died of liver failure now years later eileen's biological mom would say that she believed that eileen had killed her grandmother so with grandma now gone the grandfather then wanted all of the kids out of the house and so he threw both eileen and keith out on the street eileen was alone and she had to learn how to support herself. She had nowhere to live, so she lived in the woods, and she made money by prostituting herself. In May of 1974, when Eileen was 18 years old, she was arrested for driving under the influence, disorderly conduct, and firing a 22 caliber gun from a moving vehicle. She was arrested But she never appeared for her court hearing, and so she was charged for failure to appear. Just two years later, in 1976, Eileen decided that she wanted to hitchhike to Florida. And there, she met a 69-year-old yacht club president by the name of Louis Fell. Now, it didn't take long for the two of them to get married, But Eileen ended up spending most of her time in local bars, and she often found herself involved in numerous confrontations, one that even landed her in jail for a short period of time. She also had hit her husband with his own cane, and so her husband, Louis, then filed a restraining order against Eileen. Now, after this incident, Eileen decided to go back to Michigan And on July 14th of 1976, she was arrested at a bar called Bernie's because she had thrown a cue ball at a bartender's head. On July 17th, Eileen's brother Keith died of throat cancer and Eileen ended up receiving $10,000 from his life insurance. On July 21st, just a few days after the death of her brother, and only nine weeks after nine weeks of being married to lewis eileen and lewis annulled their marriage so eileen now is sitting there with ten thousand dollars in her pocket so what she did over the next couple of months was to buy items that she couldn't otherwise afford including a new car which she ended up crashing not long after she purchased it now in 1978 eileen is 22 This point in time, and for the sixth time in her life, she attempted suicide. This time, though, she shot herself in the stomach. But prior to this, she had made multiple suicide attempts, even since the age of 14. Eventually, Eileen made her way back to Florida, and in May of 1981, she robbed a convenience store with a gun in Edgewater. Florida. For this, she made off with $35, two packs of cigarettes, and a prison sentence. She was then incarcerated and was not released until June of 1983. Just a few months later, in 1984, Eileen then forged some checks and she tried to cash them at a bank in Key West, Florida. And again, Eileen was arrested. Now, I'm not giving Eileen any excuses here. But the fact is, she had a really crappy upbringing. She was kicked out of her home that she knew was her home, had evidently been abused by her grandfather and her brother, and literally had no direction in life. She had no idea what to do, how to live, how to act, how to get herself on her feet. So it's really no surprise that she ended up running the crime spree that she did. In January of 1986, she was again arrested, but this time she was arrested in Miami for car theft, obstruction of justice, resisting arrest, and using the identification of her aunt. Within the stolen car, they found a 38 caliber revolver and a box of ammunition. Then on June 2nd of that same year, Police in Daytona Beach, Florida detained Eileen for questioning after a man that she was with accused her of pulling a gun in his car and demanding $200. This same year, Eileen met a 24 year old woman named Tyria Moore at a gay bar in Daytona Beach. Now, it wasn't long before they moved in together, and at first they were staying with a friend of Tyria's named Cammie and her husband. Eileen moved in for a brief time and Eileen supported both her and Tyria with the money she earned as a prostitute. Eileen and Tyria were literally inseparable. It was at this point that something changed with Eileen. While she continued to prostitute herself, it began to turn deadly. On December 1st, 1989, an abandoned car was found in the woods in Ormond Beach, Florida. Now, this wasn't unusual to find a ban- an abandoned car in Florida, but what made this one different is that the keys were still in the ignition and there were bloodstains inside the vehicle. Along with this, they also found a wallet that still contained a driver's license and the driver's license said that the owner of the vehicle, supposed owner of this vehicle, was 51-year-old Richard Mallory. They would later discover that the driver's seat of the car had been pulled all the way forward, as if someone much shorter than Mallory had been driving. They also later found out that multiple items were missing from the car, including a toolbox, a camera, and a radar detector. Richard's body was actually found a few days later, about five miles away from where his vehicle was located. His pants pockets had been turned inside out and his autopsy would later reveal that he'd been shot three times with a 22 caliber gun. It was later learned that Richard had a criminal record for rape and was known to be a heavy drinker as well as a regular customer of prostitutes. But after following all the leads that they had, the police could not identify who may have killed him. So his case went cold. Then on May 26th, a Dodge pickup truck was found abandoned in Marion County near Ocala, Florida. The right front tire was flat, so the police assumed that the car, the truck was just left um, abandoned because the, of the flat tire. Now, after they ran the VIN number, the vehicle identification number, they discovered that the truck had belonged to a man named David Spears, who actually had been reported missing. A few days later, on June 1st, near some woods on the east side of the state, a naked body of a man was found. This was later determined to be 43 year old David Spears who was identified by using x-rays of his teeth. He had been shot with a small caliber weapon six times. On June 6th of 1990, the body of another male, naked and riddled with bullets was located near Pasco County, near Interstate 95. Now this victim was 40-year-old Charles Karskaden, and he'd been shot nine times with a small caliber pistol. So far, even though all of these crimes involved males, and they had all been shot with a small caliber pistol, the police hadn't connected these crimes. And the reason for this was because all of the crimes happened in different jurisdictions. And at the time, jurisdictions didn't have a way of seeing what other departments were working on. Then on July 4th, the police believe they get a break. It's July 4th, 1990, and there was a car crash that happened near Orange Springs, Florida. It was in a relatively quiet and secluded area car had come around a corner too fast and ended up running into a tree. Two women exited the vehicle and continued to walk down the street. Now, because this area was somewhat secluded, there was at least one witness. When the police did check out the car, they realized that it belonged to a man named Peter Sims. Peter had gone missing in June of 1990 on his way to Arkansas, According to his nephew, Peter was a kind man who liked to pick up hitchhikers and talk to them, mainly about God. Inside the vehicle, police found that there had been signs of a struggle and that there were a number of finger and palm prints. The witness who saw the two women gave a description of the women that she saw to a police sketch artist. And this sketch artist, Or this sketch was circulated throughout Florida's police departments. On July 31st, 1990, a 50-year-old man by the name of Troy Burris was reported missing. Now it was his employer who had called the police when he didn't complete his delivery route. It wasn't until a few days later on August 4th that Troy's body was found off of State Road 19, again in the Daytona Beach area. Troy had been shot twice with a .22 caliber pistol. Then again in September of 1990, 56-year-old Dick Humphreys, who happened to be a former police chief, was reported missing by his wife. His body was found the day after she had reported him missing and he too had been shot. But this time he was shot seven times with a .22 caliber gun. His car, was found the next day and you think that this would be the end of the crime spree but no there was still more two months later another man a 60 year old walter gino antonia was found and he also was naked he too had been shot with a 22 caliber gun three times in the back and once in the head now after this last discovery The police then decided to make the sketches that they had of these women. Um, They wanted to make them public. So what they did is they released them to the media. In the meantime, the police had a list of all of the items that had been reported missing from these abandoned vehicles. And so they began to check out different pawn shops to see if any of these items had been pawned. Now at the time, if you pawned an item in Florida, not only did you have to provide a driver's license, you also had to have your thumbprint placed on the pawn card. The police got super lucky. At one location, they did find some items that had been missing from Peter Sims' vehicle. And along with it, the card that was filled out. Now, the name on the card was a Cami Green. Now, Cami, if you remember, was the name of the friend that Tyria had been staying with when she brought Eileen to the home. As it turns out, Cammie had, quote unquote, lost her license about five years earlier. Once the police realized that the person who had visited the pawn shop had not actually been Cammie Green, they then used the fingerprint to find out who had pawned the items. Now, the software that was used to identify fingerprints, it was new at the time, And when they ran the print through the system, it didn't come up with anything. So they then decided to try it manually, to search for this fingerprint manually. Now what this meant is that they would have to go through thousands and thousands of actual fingerprint records. Three people began the search and almost miraculously, they came across a match within 15 minutes. The match came back to Eileen Warnos. The thing is, at the time, they had this match, which is great, right? But the police didn't actually have enough physical evidence to connect her to these crimes. The police knew who she was, and they knew of her extensive criminal background. They also knew that she liked to frequent biker bars, So what they did is, after staking out some locations, they found that Eileen happened to be at a bar named The Last Resort in Port Orange, Florida. It was at this point that they sent in an undercover officer to identify her. Now, once he did identify Eileen, he began to talk with her and made sure that once they made that connection, that she was never out of his sight detectives were also stationed outside the bar undercover and across the street. They were all watching. Um, In the meantime, the undercover officer inside the bar, he was wired up and all of the detectives heard the entire conversation taking place between the undercover officer and Eileen. Now the undercover, he was supposed to keep giving her beer and cigarettes and keep her in view the entire time. With her, he noticed, uh, she had a purse and a bag, but did not notice any gun on her. He was convinced that the gun that they were looking for was in one of these items, either her purse or that bag. As Eileen and the undercover officer walked outside of the bar, the police came up and arrested Eileen. The undercover officer, he acted right along with it. And he even went so far as to get into a fight with the officers where they put him in handcuffs as well so that he would end up in the back of the police car with Eileen. Now, this is so they could record the entire conversation between the two of them while they were in the back of the squad car. At one point, the undercover officer asked Eileen, Honey, what's going on? Do you have a warrant? And she replied, Honey, you're probably one of those little undercover suckers who's doing some kind of shit, and I don't know what's going on. What they did eventually find inside of Eileen's bag, uh, which turned out to be a small suitcase, was a receipt for a storage facility in Daytona. After gaining access to Eileen's storage locker, the police found items stolen from nearly every single victim. However... They didn't find the gun. Now, Eileen ended up in Volusia County Jail, but not because of the murders. She had an outstanding weapons warrant, and they still didn't have any evidence connecting her to these murders, so they had to wait until she talked. What they decided to do is kind of pull out a secret weapon, her girlfriend, Tyria. Now, Tyria, by this point, she had moved to a different state, and they found her in Pitson, Pennsylvania, and she told the police that Eileen had admitted to her about the murder of Richard Mallory on the day that it happened. The police then had Tyria come in and identify Eileen from a police lineup. now tyria she was just beside herself she was incredibly afraid that she too would be charged with murder but the police told her that if she got eileen to confess she would not be charged as an accomplice and tyria agreed it was then at a motel in Daytona Beach where Tyria, along with a detective present, had Eileen call her from jail. Now, all of these phone calls were being recorded, and an officer was always in the room with Tyria. Tyria told Eileen, whom she referred to as Lee, that she was scared. The police were questioning her. Her mom was worried and her mom was calling her every day. She didn't know what to do. Over the course of two full days, Eileen and Tyria talk almost 12 separate times, but Eileen still hadn't admitted to anything. Now, all this time, Tyria is getting fed questions to ask from the detective. It was at this point that, That Eileen promised that she would not ever let anything happen to her, to Tyria, that she, Eileen, would then go and confess to everything. There's been officials up at my parents' house asking some questions. Uh-oh. And I'm getting scared. I'm pretty damn worried. You just tell them you don't know anything about it, and I'm going to tell I don't know anything about it because we don't. Right? <sighs> they're, they're coming after me. I know they are. No, they're not. <laughs> I'm going to cry. I can't help it. I'm scared. <laughs> Why are they asking so many questions? Don't worry about nothing. This isn't unfair. You evidently don't love me anymore. I mean, you're going to let me get in trouble for something that I didn't do. I am not. I'm going to climb. I don't know whether I should keep on living or if I should... No time, time. Is, I love you too much. What happens when you go to jail? So on January 16th, Eileen confessed to committing the murders, allegedly out of self-defense against them trying to rape her. Over the course of three hours, Eileen told police explicit details of all of the murders. During the confession, she kept saying over and over, there is no other girl. It was just me. It was all me. Eileen, at this point, was 34 years old, and it was the first case of a female serial killer. And as such, it began to get lots of media attention, so much so that Eileen sold the film rights to her life story expecting to earn a lot of money from it. However, Florida law did not permit someone to profit from criminal enterprise, and so Eileen would receive no money. But this didn't mean that the lawyers and investigators in the case could not. So many of them hired their own media lawyers to negotiate their own book and film deals. Now, initially, Eileen's defense team wanted her to plead guilty to six of the murders, Um, and the reason it was six was because the body of Peter Sims was never found, and Eileen continued to deny that she had anything to do with his murder, so without evidence, it was just the six men. The prosecution, however, wanted to try her case, and they wanted to seek the death penalty, So what they did was try her for the murder of Richard Mallory, her very first victim. On January 14th of 1992, Eileen won on trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. Now, under Florida's Williams rule, the prosecution was allowed to present evidence from her other crimes, you know, specifically the additional murders during the trial, in order to show a pattern of illegal activity. Eileen demanded, demanded to take the stand in order to tell her story to the jury. So she did against advice of counsel. And when she did, she described in detail how the murder of Richard Mallory was in self-defense. She described him tying her to the steering wheel of the car and how he had threatened to kill her. Yes, you are, bitch. You're going to do everything I tell you to do. And if you don't, I'll kill you right now. Now, Mallory did have a past of crimes of a sexual nature, but the judge ruled that this information was not admissible in court. It was then that Tyria took the stand against Eileen on the fourth day of the trial. The woman that Eileen trusted and loved and took care of sat in court and described how she had conversations with Eileen over the course of two days with police present. Eileen was devastated. We were sitting on the floor watching TV and she just came out and said, I have something to tell you. And I asked her what. And she said that she had shot and killed a man that day. She loved you, didn't she? Yes. Tyria said that they were sitting on the floor and she Eileen just came out and said that Eileen said that she had confessed to the murder of Richard Mallory. The trial ended on January 27th of 1992 and after just an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury came back and Eileen was found guilty of Richard Mallory's murder. And four days later, she was sentenced to death. For the rest of the murders, Eileen just went ahead and pled guilty. And as such, she was given six death sentences. Now, in 1997, while Eileen is in prison, she gave an exclusive interview. During this interview, she shows absolutely no remorse. She talks about Richard Mallory and appears to have no fear at the thought of being executed. Hi everybody in the free world. I hope you're doing good. I'm telling the truth about my cases and um, I have never done this before. When I re- uh, ran into Richard Mallory and uh, you all have heard the story, what happened with him and everything else, and that supposedly rape. Well that is true. It was rape. Roy Barrows had another one, the Attitude Problem. He claimed he only had ten dollars on him and that uh, he didn't have any other money on him. He just wanted to hand me ten bucks. For sex, do not give me a problem. You know, just either give me the money and be cool and everything'll be all right. Or be your aggressive, nasty self and then gonna hit the fan. I'm not gonna go to prison for these creeps. So I was thinking in my mind, Okay, eventually you're gonna catch me, but you're gonna catch me down the road. I'm gonna take a hell of a lot of men with me before I'm ever executed. She was so determined to be executed, in fact, that in two thousand and one she actually petitioned the Supreme Court of Florida to fire her legal team who kept filing appeals on her behalf. She wanted them to stop. Her reasoning was as follows quote, I killed those men, robbed them as cold as ice, and I'd do it again too. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. I am so sick of hearing this, she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. Now, this resulted in the governor instructing three psychiatrists to evaluate Eileen to ensure she was competent to make such a decision. They all concluded that she was mentally fit, and she understood that she was going to die by execution. While awaiting her execution date, Eileen started to make wild accusations. She claimed that a prison matron had been abusing her. She also claimed her food was tainted with spit, dirt, and urine. She said she had overheard conversations where prison staff were planning to push her over the brink so that she would commit suicide. Eileen declined her right to a final meal of choice. And on October 9th, 2002, at 9.47 in the morning, Eileen Warnos' sentence was carried out by lethal injection. Her last words were, yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie, Big mothership and all, I'll be back. I'll be back. She was pronounced deceased at nine forty-seven a.m. Eileen was cremated, and her ashes were buried in her hometown of Rochester, Michigan. She was also the tenth woman executed in America since 1976. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you so much. Uh, Please don't hesitate to send me a message or hit me up and let me know what kind of uh, topics you might want to hear about. Um, In the future, I'm going to have some great places that you can actually go to online in order to pass along this information for me so that I am providing for you what you want to hear. So until then, uh, please stay tuned to the Instagram page at Beach House 34 podcast or follow me on Facebook at Beach House 34. Thank you so much again. Thank you. I will talk with you next week.